bum bum bottom 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 bum
for dating reasons. And it, and um, and that didn't work out, but this did. Yeah, this did. And could you have imagined 15 years ago, Lisa, that we would have a podcast together and we would be chatting with Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone? I don't think I knew who Jeff Smith was 15 <laughs> years ago. Oh, okay, all right. Well, how about seven years ago? Could you have imagined it then? Um... I suppose I could imagine having a podcast because I did listen to podcasts and I loved them. What I'm getting around, Lisa, is that this is incredible. Like it is unfathomable, <laughs> unfathomable, that's hard to say, that we are chatting with Jeff Smith this week on Comic Book Couples Counseling. Like this is a dream come true. And, you know, if we think about it, you know, the last Creator Corner conversation we had was with Jeff Lemire and Andrea Sorrentino. Right. We're now chatting with Jeff Smith. And next week, or our next Creator Corner conversation is with Stan Sakai talking about Samurai Rabbit and Usagi Ojimbo. Like, any one of those conversations would have made my year, would have made my decade. And now all three of them have happened within the span of, what, two weeks? Yeah, it's insane. And it's set a weird precedent where every two two weeks or so, I'm like, I need to talk to somebody super rad right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, where can we go from here? The ghost of Jack Kirby. Let's throw a seance. Oh, uh, you know, I'm not opposed to attempting to commune <laughs> with Jack Kirby in some way. Hey, Jeremy Kirby, what's up? Are you listening? Let's chat. We better stop self-congratulating because we are going <laughs> to jinx ourselves and we will never get an interview again. Yeah, and you know, this is Jeff Smith, the creator of Bone. Let's live in the present. This is a moment. You know, Bone, for me, like that comic shaped my imagination. Uh, I started reading those back in the black and white days, the cartoon books days, before Scholastic took over and colorized them and turned them into these beautiful digests. And I, I think we talk about this on Mike with Jeff, so I won't spoil it too much, but you know, I was there at the SBX where Scholastic was announced as a partner with Bone. And I remember being so like, oh, no, oh, my change is bad, thing. change is bad. And, you know, uh, that was the smartest thing Jeff Smith ever did. Mm -hmm. And Bone is one of those comics where once you complete the epic and you fold it into your personality, your philosophy, you're like, well, like, where can a creator go from here? Like, it's just so damn good. And Jeff Smith has made some incredible comics since then. Highly recommend Razzle. And now here he is with Tukey, a comic that initially started online, and then he published three single issues before he kind of rejiggered the whole thing and has now put them out currently as two trade paperbacks, two very large formatted trade paperbacks. Fight for Fire, which is currently available, and Fight for Family, which if you were a Kickstarter backer, you have access to the digital edition now, but the physical copies will arrive on July 5th. And I gotta tell you, and I embarrassed myself slightly with Jeff Smith at the beginning of this conversation, where like I read that first trade paperback, I was like, man, Jeff Smith makes great comics, I really like this. And it's in that second volume, the one that's coming out, Fight for Family, where you start to see the bigger picture of what Tukey is becoming, and you realize, oh, we have a bone-level mythology in the works. This is something truly special. This is next-level Jeff Smith. You'll hear in this conversation that the idea of setting a mythology at this particular point in human history, two million years ago, when they were 
five species of humans just wandering around fighting to see who makes it. Yeah, like, so good. That concept has just been like um, tickling the back of his imagination for a long time. And that's something that I relate to. I, I mm. have like, particularly when it comes to science facts, mm. I, I'm like not a scientist, but something will resonate with me kind of like poetically. Mm -hmm. Like, um, what what was the documentary, sweetheart? Oh, it was uh, Werner Herzog's At the End of the World, I believe, his Antarctica documentary. And he mentions in this documentary that there are these deranged penguins who, <laughs> yeah. for some reason, there's something wrong with their psychology or their, like, their inner compass, and they just start wandering the wrong way. And I have folded the idea of the deranged penguin into my psyche. It, it has become a metaphor for, like, so many things. I can't believe you're even bringing it up on the podcast. I know. And and it's something where I'm like, I've tried to do something creatively with it and it's just never become a thing. I feel like we, like, you know, I think that is something that we need to get back to or that you need to get back to. Like, I see in our future a deranged penguin comic book. I oh, really man. do. Yeah, because I was trying to do it like an epic poem. Yeah, and now we've just spoken it into the microphones that, of that our has... Jeff Smith episode. <laughs> that has never resulted. That kind of um, <laughs> accountability has never really resulted in, in um, uh, a product for we'll us. See, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> but I use that as an example of sometimes ideas just stick with you mm -hmm. and stay with you. And the idea that Jeff Smith can like kind of like just like paleontology just continue to dust off with a fine tooth brush around the idea until it becomes something yeah it's just so inspiring and yes. impressive to me yes. and i find the story of tuki to be just so special yeah. because he takes this point in history and goes like what would it look like if these species conspired around one or a handful of Homo erectus that had a good idea. Yeah, and uh, turns out, I feel like Tukey is one of those comics that is speaking to the moment, this very divisive era in American history, in global history. I think Smith is percolating on a lot of anxiety that is working out quite well for him as a storyteller. You are not going to believe the length of this conversation. Like you, you look at that and you go like, oh, Brad and Lisa must have been bloviating on for 45 minutes before we get into the interview. No, he spoke to us for over an hour. Yeah. We really get into it. Yeah. Um, and I, I really cherished our time. Yeah, it, it, was, it was extremely special. And there's like this moment before we hit record where Jeff Smith is giving us compliments. Oh, words of affirmation. And like I, like I couldn't even handle it, which is why when we start the actual chat, you're going to hear some very like... <laughs> or they might not. You could have just planted it in their heads. You put the seed in their heads that well, Brad Dollickson is an awkward interviewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, well, like, like prepare yourself. <laughs> and if you don't hear it, let me know. And you should just know that I was, like, vibrating with anticipation and joy uh, because this is... This is the Jeff Smith interview on Comic Book Couples Counseling. The first? The first of hopefully many, because I'm going to need this conversation to continue as more Tukey comics come out. There's so much to explore within this world and within its hidden world. So I don't think we spoil anything 
in this interview. Like plot details stuff. Nothing, nothing major. We talk about the characters a little bit. So um, if you have not read the comic book yet, you can still listen to this interview. Yeah, Lisa's always afraid that people don't listen to these interviews in fear of spoilers. Yeah, you don't have to have read the comic book, but I'll tell you what, if you listen to this interview and you don't buy the comic book, I don't believe you exist. That's impossible. You're not a real being. Anyone who hears this conversation is going to want Tukey comics in their lives. That's right. You're either a phantom or someone who goes to the library. They uh, could check it out, probably. Yeah, 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 yes. Use the library. Use Hoopla if you can. Speaking of which, shout out to the Reston Library. They just started their book sale today. Oh, yeah. So we got to check that out. If you're local to Brad and Lisa, head on over to the Reston Library and take advantage of that. We should take advantage of it before we release this episode because we're going to miss out on some good books. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. But, you know, support your local library. Before we can get into the interview, we need to give a little plot synopsis. Mm. A mm-hmm. little context. Tuki is a Homo erectus, just like us, a fire starter. And he thinks he's a lone wolf mm-hmm. as he goes seeking Moab, the mother herd of all buffalo. But then he runs into this Homo habilis, who is like an anti-fire species <laughs> of human. And he gets poofed in the face with some dust. Mm-hmm. And he's given this prophecy. Yeah. Um, of which he is somewhat skeptical, but he can't manage to shake Doc. Yeah. And so he continues on his quest, but then he ends up rescuing these three children who are also Homer erectus um, from this like gorilla demon thing. So good. And yeah, it's just like a quest story. Well, and there's also Quarrel. He's like on the fringes of the story that eventually mm-hmm. like joins their troop. And he has like this, um, I would say he shares some cartooning DNA with the Bone Cousins. And there is a backstory there that I am very interested in. And he's also like a third species yes. of human. So at first you get the sense that these three different species are like, competing for dominance, but as these characters cling closer to each other, you begin to get the sense that Homo erectus is actually the result of a collaboration Mm -hmm. of several human species who kind of start just like rooting for Tukey because he's so like charismatic and he has these really cool ideas like the the loin sling <laughs> thing became very hip. Yeah, that loin sling. I, I think we gotta stop. I think we gotta be quiet. I think we need to like move into this actual conversation with Jeff Smith. When you say be quiet, it kind of hurts my feelings oh, because I, I'm the only person in this room I and was, clearly you mean me. I was also speaking to myself because I love talking about Tukey and I, you know, I have a tendency to ramble, Lisa. Oh, that is true. You are a rambling man. Yeah. Oh, 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 uh, one last thing. How dare you after you told me to be quiet. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but we had this conversation with Jeff before the Netflix news dropped. Oh, that's right. So we will not be discussing the sadness regarding Bones' <sighs> no future on Netflix. Though we don't have to discuss it because he did post his feelings in the form of a cartoon that is crushing. Yes, and uh, links in the show notes to that cartoon. And, oh man, so brutal. But... You know, uh, I, I still have hope for Bones animated future, but even if I have hope for Bones animated future, it doesn't matter because I have Bone the comics right before me right now. Be quiet. Uh, be quiet. Yes, silence. Jeff Smith, take it away. Oh. 
Jeff, thank you so much for joining us at Comic Book Couples Counseling. Welcome to the Love Nest. <laughs> the Love Nest. Oh, well, so nice to be here. Good to see you, Brad and Lisa. Yeah. I'm it's a Vlad. I don't know what you're that came Well, from. you know, if Jeff Smith's going to call me Vlad, I'm going to go <laughs> with Vlad. I may even change that name. Uh, <laughs> it is a true honor and a privilege to have you on the podcast chatting all things Tukey. Uh, we just finished volume two this morning and like i enjoyed volume one i really really liked volume one volume two is where everything came together for me i love tukey i was a little nervous recently well i liked one no i i know i i really liked one but i mean like i loved tukey volume two uh yes and I think where I wanted to start this conversation is with volume two and it's there in volume one, but I start to really see the world that you're exploring, you know, 2 million years BCE, you have these six species that are going to become humanity or one's going to become humanity. Uh, It's like this period of transformation where we could become anything or nothing. And I want to know why, you wanted to explore this particular period at this point in time and maybe how it relates to your own feelings of where you are in life or what have you. Well, it, uh, it all came together through, uh, through a long process. I've, I've always been fascinated by uh, evolution, human origins, where do we come from? And when I was 14 is when the famous Lucy, the Australopithecus afarensis fossil was found. Um, and it was big, big news. I mean, here was a, a, the fossilized skeleton of a female that had features that were both ape and human, basically human from the waist down. And it was like, there were TV specials about it. There were, you know, Life magazine specials about it. It was, it was a big deal and it really hooked me. Uh, and then Many years later, I went to uh, um, the Tarangiri National Park in Tanzania, and in there, near the Great Rift Valley, is Olduvai Gorge, which is not where Lucy was found, but was where one of the other uh, early, early uh, hominid species was from. And being there, um, I talk about it in the book a little bit. I had almost, I had a vision, because they were talking about, you know, the roots of humanity go deep in Africa, deep, 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 millions of years back, all of evolution can be seen right in this one spot in Olduvai Gorge. And I looked up at the ridge above the gorge and I saw like the trees kind of blowing around. And I kind of pictured almost like a ghostly image of like all these human species walking past each other, interacting almost as if they were in a marketplace or something like that. And I, I never forgot it. I didn't ever think, I didn't think about it at the time that I'd make a comic about it, but there was definitely a big step where, in that direction. The last piece that really tied me together is I'm, I'm, I'm always reading books on evolution. Mm-hmm. They're fascinating. Um, you know, we've, we've overlapped with other human species many times in our, our history. The most recent one was with Neanderthals in Europe. Uh, but Two million years ago, there was a moment where that matched my vision, where there was still Lucy's species was still alive and 
in East Africa. So we're like multiple other species. Like I have the ones I've lived, li the ones I've listed in the book, like Homo habilis, the, the tool maker, and Homo erectus, the fire starter. And that's the key. Not two million years ago, all the A team of our species, of our of our evolutionary plan, was all around at the same time, and fire was introduced into the mix. And I when I I only just realized that a few years ago when I was reading a book called Catching Fire, How Cooking Made Us Human. And I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but it's in my book. And um, there it is, fire. Yeah. We started, we, we, we learned to control fire and eat cooked food. It changed our, it changed our biology. It changed the shape of our bodies. Around that same time, uh, we started to shed our hair. And we know that because they can check the DNA of lice and things like that. But it's all very fascinating. And all we really began two million years ago. That's that's where we started. And you say almost with relish in your introduction that we do not come from like a straight line. Like we are the direct result of like a mess. And do you <laughs> and do you find the like the idea of a mess like comforting or inspiring? Oh, heck yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we came from a train wreck. It's just, uh, I mean, maybe that's because, you know, I'm an American and that's our story. We're just, we're a big mess, uh, but it's a big, smart mess. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that's fascinating. I really do. When we meet Tukey for the first time, he is extremely like inventive and self-sufficient, but he's also like, extremely attractive like which is an important trait evolutionarily but he's also like compassionately gathering this like little group of misfits um when we see Tuki specifically are we supposed to have that light bulb moment of like Tuki, that's us or are yes. we supposed to relate to the group like more as a whole um it's i i think it's a little of both uh Tuki is really kind of based on the, you know, the lone wanderer, the, the Clint Eastwood character. Really, he was based on um, Toshio Mifuni from uh, Yojimbo, Yojimbo, exactly. I mean, that's that's kind of who, if I, if I could go back in time and get him to play him in the movie kind of thing. He um, has that, like, that ex the expression does feel like Mifune at times. Yeah, and I give him Mifune's uh, sides, you know, <laughs> and um, but and but he, so he is a lone wanderer. But there was a moment um, when the kids came in when I also wanted him to be one of the most compassionate people. I wanted him to be honestly good, not necessarily, you know. Uh, you know, he's not the grandmotherly with these kids or anything, but he but his first instinct is to be good beyond survival. And yeah, I wanted to say this is this is the moment where we started to be a little bit more like us. And of course, I modernized it with language and things like that. But he seems to be like treated like like with this reverence and admiration everywhere he goes. A little like, fear, too. A little fear, too. <laughs> uh, um, but people kind of like when other species meet him, they kind of feel that momentum of yeah. the future. Yes, I think, well, definitely, yes. And that is, in, that's, you know, like Doc, um, who he, he nicknames Doc, mm -hmm. is this sort of like this 
this prophet or a mystic seer uh, who's been outcast by his his people, um, he sees something in Tuki. And it, it's something that's probably scary because it's probably something to do with the fact that this is the new this is the new thing. This is uh, rock and roll showing up, mm -hmm. you know, and um, this is the Beatles. We, we're, we're, we're in trouble. But on the other hand, he can't take his eyes off him. Hmm. Um, and, and, and he is doing things that are surprising to them, like fighting, you know, giant ape gods and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So, so when, those, when he, they get those night visitors uh, in the second book, um, it's, they're, they're a little worried. They're, they're nervous. They don't just come up and start tearing up the place. They, they're checking them out and scoping them out first. I want to talk a little bit about the hidden world and the ape gods and your balance of, you know, uh, science slash fantasy and science slash mysticism, uh, you know, something that you've explored in your previous work. Um, but, but I was, I guess I was like a little surprised to see it uh, evolve in this story. How did you come with to that relationship? Well, it is, I, I went to a lot of effort to make the tableau very scientifically accurate. There'll be no dinosaurs here. The dinosaurs have been gone for 60 million years at this point. Um, and yet I still wanted to have, um, you know, some magic in the world. And my basic rationale for that is that that's, that's what you get in La Morte d'Arthur, you know, in the Arthurian legends. Um, they're grounded in, you know, the, they're supposedly in the real kingdom, but, you know, there's magic, there's maids standing around fountains in the middle of the woods. Uh, in, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey, there's, there's sort of a mystical element. And even in Moby Dick, my favorite book of all, uh, it's very realistic. And yet Moby Dick is totally magic. He is, he is a, he is a smart monster. Uh, it's so to me, that's that's just what storytelling is. And it's my favorite kind. I've always been I'm always fascinated with the invisible hmm. in, in Russell. It was physics and parallel universes. And in Bone, of course, it was that dreams connect us. And, you know, it's all I, I, there's something going on that we don't see everything that's going on. Hmm. It the with the relationship with fire in particular. And, you know, I love the idea of cooking, you know, as a avid top chef uh, viewer, Lisa and I, the idea of cooking being kind of the moment where humanity evolved because of it. But, the, you know, there are moments in the first book of Tuki where people encounter fire or the other uh, versions of man encounter fire. And they're like, this is blasphemy. Cooking flesh is blasphemy. So you give them that a point of view and the you know that perspective but you also allow those characters to discover the wonder of fire as well you know oh i, right. I slept by a fire for the first time that was really something special uh, how what is like how did what did you want to convey in these other characters this found family encountering fire well i i think we're kind of setting up the next age of the world in a way I don't think I don't know more than that, except that I want them. I, I want the family to kind of go along with Tuki and see that it's not so bad. Um, that's not going to be such an easy thing for everybody else, though. I mean, Tuki's not going to be able to just say, here, look how good a hot dog is. I mean, it won't. It's not going to fly. Um, 
but for this little group, it's it's they recognize that Tuki's onto something. And of course, the two children are of the same. Uh, they're the same as right. Tuki. So they're from fire. They're fire folk as well. Yeah, the youth. The youth. Well, it seems, it seems that like every subsect of people is defined by what they fear, like the Habilene fear fire and the Pythocenes like fear individuation. And then mm. I feel like even the kids, they have a very like strong fear of others. But at the beginning of the story, like Tuki is not sure what he's afraid of. And when he finally finds it and he realizes, oh my goodness, my hands are shaking. He's not like, it doesn't turn him off. Like he is suddenly all of, all of a sudden like proud. Like yeah. where does that pride come from? Well, I mean, he's, he's kind of a, he's a loner. And I think, he, you know, he's reluctantly, he, I mean, he, he wants to help these people, these, mm -hmm. these people, he, something about them makes him want to help them. But I think it helps define him as well. I think it, he is getting something out of seeing them too. So he's liking it. He's, I think he's liking having these, this little found family. Also, he almost, he almost got eaten by a saber tooth. So. <laughs> <laughs> so that just that rush of survival. To me, you say, you mentioning the thing about cooking, like brings Tuki together for me where like, oh, it is that like, cause cooking is like the center of us coming together. Mm, like, yeah. like the, the image of the family, like around the the table you know um mm. we actually don't know a lot about where tuki comes from like we know he had sisters we mm. knew he killed at least one giant before we met him and we and we know his lore right but we mm. like are we going to learn more about tuki's origins or is it better that that is like shrouded in mystery no we'll learn we'll learn some more uh, I mean, you kind of have to, but I, but not too much. I mean, you, you can't know too much about uh, uh, Yojimbo, you know. Mm. It's, you kind of have a you kind of have an idea, but uh, at some point, isn't there a moment in Yojimbo where he makes his first big mistake during the hostage exchange? Yeah, and you kind of learn like, oh, something like that happened to him when he was a little boy, and yeah. that makes him make a mistake. Because he's he loses his cynicism for a second. Yeah, so and he, you, you gain humanity out. for him in that moment too. Like you, you, you see him as more than just the icon. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I, I'm. We're definitely going to learn some more about him, and, uh, and like cooking, we're going to get into more of that. And because really, the if you think about like a prime, uh, you know, like a gorilla or something, or even a chimpanzee, they have big guts, and that's because if you're if you're eating plants. Or even if you eat some meat but eat it raw, you need a lot of that takes up a lot of real estate in your intestines. You need a lot of that. So as soon as we started eating cooked food, we could digest it much easier. We could slim down, and a, a digestion takes a lot of blood power mm -hmm. too. So now that blood power could go other places, you know, like to your brain. And that's exactly what they think happened. Um, and I did allude a little bit to. Uh, like the kids were talking about, uh, Z and uh, La were talking about, um, which one do you like better, meat or, or, or the vegetables? And I, you know, and I researched it and apparently they're like, you know, the potatoes, you put them in the fire and it releases the, the sugars in it. 
and they become you know soft and sweet and easy to digest and um, the same with the meat so we'll get into more I'll get more into that cooking stuff later I'm really I'm also really curious about the differentiation of the kids because we have law who's leaning more towards gatherer caretaker and then we have uh, Renan who is going like more in the hunter protector kind of direction but then we have Z who is the drawer of swirls and I love that moment between Z and La where La looks at the swirl and she sees the swirl going towards the center and like uh, Z keeps it to herself but I get the sense that she sees her swirls as going from the center out so I'm like wondering if like to me I feel like she might be the one who is most like Tuki who sees like this going away from the center, like this potential, like, because it'll just like a swirl that goes from the center never stops, right? It just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Ooh, I had, ooh, I like that. I hadn't actually thought that. It never stops. <laughs> yeah. Right, that's very cool. I, that's very cool. Um, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, the law is definitely likes the, the hunter. She likes the gathering. Mm -hmm. Pup and Renan likes the hunting, and um, yeah, she's she's the artist, and she is she is this she's kind of the new direction, just like Tuki. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Quarrel. Oh yeah, uh, you know, and and the design of Quarrel as being something. I think you've even said it at some point in the back matter, uh, in the same design sense uh, as the the Bone Cousins, um, and why is it important for that version of our evolution to have that kind of cartooning style? I would, after Bone, you know, I did Rassel, which was, you know, kind of a mystery science fiction noir thing. <clears throat> and I really missed drawing a cartoon character, having that cartoon character in there. Uh, the Bones were just the most fun thing to draw ever. Right. And uh, and I happened to listen to uh, your your podcast with Chris and Laura Somni this morning. Oh, wow. And he said something that is also true for me. He when he he wanted to draw in Jana, he didn't want to. He was tired of drawing right angles. <laughs> so he wanted to come up with something. And I'll tell you what I was I went that I did wrestle. And so I forget, it was like five or six years I spent on that. And I was like, I'm never drawing a car again. <laughs> we're going, we're going two million years into the past, into the jungles. And, um, and I really wanted to, I needed a cartoon character. And that just seemed like I just picked that one because they're not, they're not human yet. They're half human. So. And, and, you know, like on the other end of the spectrum to Tuki, you know, Tuki's like a Mifuni character. Like the, Quarrel has like a little bit of that Mifuniness to him as well. Like there's a history in Quarrel like that we oh, have yeah. a better sense of in volume two that we did not get in volume one. And like, if there's a history I want to see further explored, it's Quarrel's history. Well, that was definitely going to have to come out. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's part of the story. And um but yeah, I, I yeah, I and I always like to have one kind of crazy character like that. Like that's Grandma Ben or mm -hmm. or Smiley Bone. There's got to be someone who's a little bit magical. I, you don't quite know, you don't really understand. You can't really question it. You know, I, I just love that kind of a character. 
It's like like Linus in Peanuts. Yeah. If he's going to have a snowball fight with Charlie Brown, while Charlie Brown makes his little fort, he turns around and Linus has like a castle with a drawbridge made out of snow. Yeah. <laughs> it's so a little good. magical, just a little bit. I love that kind of thing. I, it never ceases to like blow my mind because I'm like a huge, like big picture person. That's just how I see things. I see things in like theme and symbolism. And it always blows my mind how much uh, in comic books is defined by what, what the artist just feels like drawing. <laughs> <laughs> like talking to the Samneys, like I was like, oh, what is the meaning of this and that? And he was like, oh, I just really felt like drawing that that day. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah. okay. Uh, I, that was a very fun, that was a very fun podcast, I gotta say. Uh, yeah, I think so. And it's, good comics are usually, you know, driven by uh, an artist who just really wants to do something, who's loves what they're drawing. Um, I mean, I think Kirby, you know, he was working in a really horrible, oppressive system, but he was drawing what he, he was having fun. He was, he was always having fun the whole time. Galactus. All yeah. right. Yeah, let's put it in. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, then, and at the last minute, apparently he threw in, he'll need a Herald. I'll throw in <laughs> Silver Surfer. I, I mean, I, that's, that's fun. He's exploring the universe in his own way. Well, you know, with Tukey, it's obvious after reading two uh, volumes and then all the back matter that you give in these two volumes and your obsession with this story is very intense right now. Like it, it seems all consuming and it's been all consuming for a while. And, you know, mm -hmm. where it begins as a web uh, cartoon and then it becomes a, you try to put it into the single issues, but in doing that, you see that maybe it's not going to quite work that way. And I need to retool it. Um, how do you, I mean, I, I mean, maybe it's maybe it's not a how do you question, but what is it like to be consumed with a story like this for a good period of time? And also promising like you're, you're going to get six volumes. So you got to extend that enthusiasm for a, a good chunk of time going forward. Yeah, um, I, I don't that has not that just wasn't a problem for me. Uh, I, I, but I used to get asked that question a lot in the early days of Bone. <clears throat> Uh, and I was friends with Dave Sim in those early days, too, who was doing Cerebus. And people would ask us, how are you going to, you know, what, how, how, how could you, how could you have one character for your whole life? And I'm like, my heroes are Charles Schultz, Walt Kelly, and Carl Barks. I mean, they worked on one character their whole lives. So, I mean, occasionally did some other things, but um, that just seemed like, isn't that how you do it to me? Uh, so that's that's my answer. I I don't have any problem with that. I did the, I did Bone. I was I was consumed with the idea with, in Bone of being able to tell an epic story like the Lord the Lord of the Rings, and and conclude it. Mm -hmm. And I was absolutely committed to. I didn't have. I really had no idea how many years that would take. It ended up taking I think thirteen actually, and I. I didn't know, but I got to the end and then, okay, that, okay, I did that. Uh, then, and while I was near the end, then I was getting obsessed with um, like Humphrey Bogart movies, the Maltese Falcon, the big sleep, uh, just, and it, but that, that was an obsession that's been going on for my whole life, just like evolution. Mm -hmm. So when, when I turned to this one, I just said, okay, I'm going to get into this. And I was really into uh, Kurosawa. I mean, that is, I am just so into his movies, especially the samurai ones, but all of them. His, his, uh, his ability to 
move the story and set the scene and uh, just put you right there and make you care is just incredible. And Miyazaki composition. Yeah, Miyazaki. Composition. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're like with Miyazaki, I can think of better examples of, he wants you to feel like you're out in the country. So he'll show a little, a little tiny path bridge over a, a small stream waterfall and just look at it for a minute. I mean, if I tried to do that in a, an animated thing, I, I would talk about that like with studios like Nickelodeon or Warner Brothers go, let's just, let's just stop and like look at like some water for a minute. You can't spend money on that. So, but I love those things and I can spend, I can do it in a comic book, so I do. Well, in, in the back matter of both books, you talk about how much of evolution is defined by like, periods of abundance and and periods of like famine. And I think that maybe creativity is a little bit like that where you move into this place of abundance and that creates a certain kind of creativity. And then you have this time of famine which creates like this other type of creativity. I, I totally agree. I probably is a lot like that. Yeah, our, all of our evolution really has been uh, kind of forced ahead by two factors, environment and um, ge geography. I mean, if, you know, you, if, you, if someone wanders into another valley and you're, you're surrounded by mountains, you're going to evolve differently than the other people. And, and the kind of food or how successful you can live is often controlled by climate and famine and all that kind of stuff. So... Yeah, it's kind of fun to slip the word climate change in there a few times because I, evolutionary scientists talk about it all the time. That's 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 a big deal. Another reason I did so much back matter, I was I wanted to make sure that people really understood the setting of this. This was um, this was really two million years ago, and that this is really a part of our human story. And I didn't want to just throw it out there and have it look like you know, uh, black Tarzan or something like that. I wanted this to really, really make it clear what I was, where I was coming from. And I thought the only way to do that was to like really carefully present the story. And the back matter was, was part of that. Towards the end of volume two, we get this kind of promise of abundance, like off on the horizon, but we know that there's, there's probably a lot more space than even this our little little family can anticipate. Like, um, how do you like how do you see the balance of abundance and famine over the course of like six volumes of a story? It's gonna ebb and flow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of imagine they're gonna. Well, I don't want to do too much of a spoiler, but yeah, sure. I think it'll. I think it's gonna come. It'll come and go. Yeah, okay. they'll have to keep. They'll have to keep on its trail. Uh, so how much of Tuki do you have planned out? Do you have, uh, you know, the way that you would do bone or razzle, you would know where it was going. Uh, and then you're, you find it on the journey to that end point. Yeah, pretty much. I'm, 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 I was really totally committed to the ending I came up with and it's still heading that way, but I'm, I'm, I have to confess, I'm thinking about it a little bit, mm. but, uh, I, I, I kind of think I know where it's going for sure. Yeah, uh, I like that kind of. I like that. Kinda. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to talk about just the format of the book. You know, it started landscape online, and then you know, again, you went to the single issues for a little while, then returned it to landscape, and how it's being published now. 
And it does have that like Sunday comic feel, um, which gives it a little bit of a different vibe than your previous work. How do you like working in this format? Um, I do like it. I like it quite a bit. It's a, it, it's a challenging because it's different. Um, you know, I, I had never drawn a comic book before Bone, the first issue of Bone. So that a lot of that was exploring what I could do with that. Uh, I'm, I'm not a flashy panel maker. I don't make crazy panels. Uh, but I did, I did want to learn what, how pacing works. So I got to learn, I learned, I taught myself during Bone. Then Rassel, I kind of went for a different thing. I mean, it's still uh, shaped like a book, you know, more vertical. But I went almost all landscape panels mm-hmm. because I was thinking, I did that in Bone whenever you would go into the dreaming. And I would do landscape panels sort of set within panels behind. Yeah. And I so I thought with Rassel, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to do all landscape panels. It's not 100% landscape panels, but it's mostly. Uh, and that was fun and interesting to do. And with Tukey, I, because I thought, oh, I'm going to do a webcomic, I thought I'm going to landscape it. And uh, I had to figure out new ways to tell this, you know, to, to show the story. And one of the ways I came up with was, I don't know if, I don't know if this is ever going to be visible on. Uh, it won't be, but we can screen cap it. We can, yeah, we'll screen cap it, put it into the other uh, so it's like so I came up with this method here, which is the giant introductory panel, mm. and then you. But that was a tough. That was a tough thing to try to figure out because I got to make sure you follow the right. You go to your eye goes to the right place. Right, uh, and that was kind of a fun challenge. In, in fact, I started to think. I, in fact, I kind of don't do it as much anymore because it's actually harder to do. I also heard. Uh, Chris and Laura talking about how much they like the book to lay flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This book lays flat like a king. I mean, I'm telling <laughs> you what, look at that. It is, it's Smithsonian, baby. To me, like th- this format is like super nostalgic because I was not raised on comic books. I was raised on comic strips. So ah. like this format, like reminds me of like when you would get the big Calvin and Hobbes and you would yeah. just like lay it on your bed. Oh, it felt yeah. so good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's like, um, uh, like, a you're not as precious with the form. Like you really like have a tactile experience with it. You do like crack it open. And it's like got this floppy quality to it that a lot of other formats don't. I I just think it's. Is there other, like, have you found now that working in a landscape format, there are like other functions that you like discovered in the creation of this, like in the storytelling, like functional? Uh, Yeah, I'm sure I have. I wonder if I can summon them up right now. Like when a splash page happens, like during the ape God fight in volume one. Or just looking at that. Yeah. Yeah. Like. It really slaps you because you've been reading it in a certain format. And then suddenly Jeff Smith comes with a splash page and it's, I mean, it feels widescreen in a way it's that, expansive, yeah. yeah, it's expansive. Perfect word. Well, and it's, it's large too. I wanted to make it uh, bone, you know, every time we printed bone, it got smaller and smaller, like a scholastic. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So even our one volume is, is in the, the scholastic size. Uh, but the original comic books were actually larger than that. And I didn't like that. I wanted to, I wanted to get this big. Yeah. And I actually, um, I showed it to Eric Reynolds, uh, one of the co-publishers at Fantagraphics, because uh, I was just wondering, what do you think of this? I mean, I wasn't asking him to publish it. I, I just wanted to say, what do you, what do you think? I mean, because I, I was, 
not sure what the hell I was, is anybody <laughs> going to like this? And he did like it. And he said, print it big. Mm -hmm. he, goes, he says, I want to see this big. Mm -hmm. So if Eric Reynolds wants to see it big, that's good enough for me, man. Yeah. Yeah. When you're drawing, what size do you draw at? It's 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 about to say it's a little bit bigger than I would draw a regular page, mm -hmm. uh, except turn that inside. So my paper is 17 by what is it by 15, 15 by 17 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And it's 12, it's it's 16 by 12, I think is the original art. So it's about 40% bigger than what you're seeing here, almost double. Mm. Um, so artist edition. I want it. <laughs> yes. I was reading an interview, uh, I think it was with uh, Comics uh, XF, and you were talking to them about, I guess they asked you if you think about a young adult audience, an all ages audience when you're doing your stories. And you said, you, you don't really, you think of it the way you would, you know, like Dick Tracy was in a S Sunday uh, paper. Uh, what's another one? Peanuts. Yeah. Um, Prince Valiant, you think of it in those terms. Exactly. And you've never really written to a younger crowd, except for maybe once with your little mouse gets ready. Yeah, yeah. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about your relationship with the the audience and how your audience has evolved. Like when obviously when Scholastic took over your, your bone books and started publishing those, you gained like this massive uh, all ages crowd that maybe you never anticipated. Maybe you did. I don't know. No, I did. I did not. Uh, when I, when I was wanting to get in to break into the comic book market and I was going to, uh, you know, I'd only maybe four years earlier kind of rediscover comic book stores. And I, uh, I mean, there were no kids in there. I mean, of course there were, there were kids and there were women reading comics, but it was almost none. And that was not, so that's not the audience I was going for. I was kind of going for the audience. I mean, I was looking at, what did I see? I went there, I, I think I followed a, I saw a newspaper article about uh, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. And it was like, it was like a double page spread in, in the Sunday paper. And I'm like, talking about comic books? So I went down to find that. And I loved that Dark Knight Returns, by the way. Yeah. They, he, he broke some rules about how you can tell a story in comic format that made me think, oh, he did a big getting in the middle of an ant. Or Batman. What? Yeah. He didn't just wrap up a, you know, a long serialized story. He made a story. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, that blew my mind. But while I was there, you know, I found like copies of Love and Rockets and um, Cerebus. And and, this, and uh, I forget a few other books. I think, uh, yeah, I found like Hate and mm -hmm. Eight Ball. And so I was thinking, okay, here's a group of kind of comics heads. Do you know what I mean? Like these, these are people, well, like you, you, you two, Brad and Lisa are like comic heads. You love comics. Mm -hmm. You love the art form. You mm -hmm. love the artists. I mean, that's who I wanted to do it to. I was hoping that whoever was buying the tick would would laugh when they saw a bone. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, um, it wasn't that I wanted to make a children's book. I wanted to make something uh, with the quality that looked like a children's book, but but wasn't really necessarily. Mm. So, and, and think about think about Dick Tracy. If you ever read like the celebrated cases of Dick Tracy, uh, that was some. That was some. There was torture. They're demented. I mean, <laughs> they're they're far, man. They're like. I mean, I remember 
I, I don't understand the way I'm feeling about this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it was exciting. Dick Tracy was very exciting to kids and to teenagers and adults. Uh, and Bone is not necessarily. Isn't that safe? It's, I mean, I don't put swear words in it, uh, even though I fucking could. <laughs> You're right. I swear, I swear like a sailor. Yeah. But, so does Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, but, 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 Carl Barks did never swear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He never saw swearing in Peanuts. Uh, so if they can do it and be that great, then that's what I was, that that was my, uh, what I was going to do. Peanuts so, was also extraordinarily dark. I'm like, somebody get that kid some help. Like, <laughs> You know what, uh, when, when Chris Ware was first doing Acme Novelty Library, and they were coming out in the different size formats books, mm-hmm. I was just in love. And I would, when I, I would try to get everybody to read that. And some people got it. And they were like, why? So I go, look, dude, it's Charlie Brown grown up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is, the, but it's the funniest depression shit ever. Yeah. It's yeah. great. I love it. And that's what Schultz, yeah, Schultz was, it was pretty dark. Yeah, like 20 years ago, I remember, I think it was about 20 years ago. It could be a little less, but you were at SPX and I was at the SPX where you were unveiling some of the early color panels for the scholastic bone. Mm-hmm. And it, like you had to convince uh, you know, the, 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 the SPX crowd that this was a good idea. And I remember going like, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> if I'm into this idea. <clears throat> yeah. But then, you know, I went to, uh, you know, years past, I went to work for Barnes and Noble, uh, became a manager for Barnes and Noble and the kids who came around bone and the way that I started to read bone through nieces and nephews eyes, nibblings eyes, it really opened up the comic for me again. And that's what I kind of wanted to know from your perspective as the creator, emotionally, what is it like to see your work get discovered in a new way like that? It, it was quite amazing. Uh, and I, I mean, I, I, they were, Scholastic was really sure that it was gonna work, mm-hmm. but they would never published a graphic novel before. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and at the time, uh, it, it was actually, they were trying to think about it and they were talking, they were in talks with Art Spiegelman and his wife, Francois Mouli, about maybe them coming on board and like maybe running some, you know, be editing a line of graphic novels or something. And it was actually Art who contacted me to do it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and it was also Art's idea to do it in color. And he, he, he had to convince me. Because I'm like art, I I I I love mouse. And mouse was one of the things that put me over the edge and made me realize that you you can do a graphic novel and tell a real story and do art, and it's in black and white. But he really believed that the color would work, and so I tested it out, and it looked pretty good. I think I think it gets better, like with starting with the second volume. And Steve Hammaker, he'd never done any color either but he he was working with us designing toys and doing ads and stuff and he just took off i mean started especially and he gets he was good really good at the beginning but when you got like by the get to like a fourth or fifth book oh this this is good this is good stuff so so yeah but then um yeah there was a weird moment where i realized kids really liked it and i you know and i was talking at schools and stuff and they have a whole different appreciation of it than I did. And I was a little worried, to be honest. Like I used to have, you know, go to shows every year and people would come get their books signed. And then, you know, 
be a line of people to get to get the new book. And, and I was like, well, what's going to happen now? Cause I've now it's kids. So um, an amazing thing happened. The grownups and the kid all came and stood in line and intermingled. Yeah. You've got, you know, giant comic book nerds with long hair and, you know, and then, then you got a, a mom and a little kids. I mean, and then they're all in line and they're all talking to each other about bone. Yeah. You know, like, oh, like the, the, the adults are going, oh, you like the dragon? Oh, that's cool. Yeah, yeah I do too. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah, it was, it, it was a, it was a brand new, it was a brand new life. I mean, Bone was very successful in terms of indie comics, but, but it was a whole new ball game once Scholastic took over. It was just much, much bigger. I actually taught at an elementary school. I was an elementary school music teacher. If you can't just read that energy off of me, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I was from uh, 2012 to 2017 and all like kids loved bone and they also loved diary of a wimpy kid and smile. And it was like the height of like, I felt like the height of um, comic books, getting kids to read again. And now I, I still work with kids. And, but now some of them that go to the same school are being specifically told not to bring to when they're bringing books for reading day, not to bring books with pictures. So I yeah. feel like there, there's now like a cultural, like, oh, it's got all of these kids to read, but they haven't necessarily moved on to like, you know, quote unquote, real books, which makes me sick. And I do tell my children, those are real books. Your teachers are wrong. <laughs> but yeah, it's, Oh, I, 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 I know what you're talking about. It's, um, I mean, it's a, it's, well, it's a backlash. Uh, and um, a lot of cartoonists are artists and they're smart and they're usually more liberal. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, that probably comes through to the parents. And uh, parents are very, I mean, there's a big, there's a whole backlash in this country about, you know, just diversity and equality you know we don't want black people to be equal we don't want trans people to be equal uh, they're not saying that of course because they're chickens and cowards but uh but they're but that's what's really going on it's really uh it's an attack against um progressive uh ideas and thoughts and graphic novels are getting swept up in that well we'll win yeah, well, yeah well. I mean, well, to me, it's it's that thing about abundance and famine again, you know, like uh, and I think at the end of the day, the war is won culturally. And I think it's yeah. that's where we're seeing the progress still is culturally. The spiral well, yeah. is going outward. The spiral <laughs> is not going in. Right. There's definitely forces trying to go back in mm -hmm. uh, and it, it, it could get ugly, but um, it's. I mean, this is not the first battle I've been involved in. I mean, at, from the day one when Bone was a success, there were people that viewed Bone's success as somehow uh, negating the things they liked. Yeah. Okay. And that, I mean, I, I had to put up with that. I had, there were real serious Bone haters for a long time. Um, and then graphic novels. Uh, I was part of that first wave of, artists who we we would spend you know all night long at it, during conventions up in somebody's hotel room or something talking about graphic novels we've got to get graphic novels because they're permanent they're not a magazine they're not they're not collectors they're books and when you sell out you you know so we wanted our i was very very pushy on that point uh and i caught i caught some big grief uh 
I remember Wizard Comics, which eventually came around to kind of liking my stuff, but they were they were like you should you should not be selling the first six issues of Bone for twelve dollars because it was worth like the first issue was worth like three hundred dollars or something at some point in the nineties, and I called them up and I said, "What the hell? Why did you put Bone as it was three hundred dollars last issue and now it's one hundred seventy five dollars? What's going on?" And they said. You're ruining the market. You're <laughs> ruining the market. That's how. So I, I mean, so so there was a huge backlash against uh, graphic novels, and then of course there was. There's always been the comics cause illiteracy. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, but you know what? They we defeated that. Yeah. And this is this is just the newest version of it. Uh, we're just going to keep at it. We're going to keep teaching kids to read, and. Um, there's nothing in my books that tells them how to think. It just tells them, it does tell them to question authority uh, and make your own decisions. But that's that's not the same thing. Well, to me, it reminds me of that scene in Tuki where the Habiline warriors are approaching and he knows that they, they are offended by his fire, but he doesn't put out his fire. He no. says, come sit with me. He invites them. Have some food with me. Come, you know, like, so it's like, it's like, yeah, uh, walk softly, carry big pointy stick, like, <laughs> or, a, or a big leg of venison or whatever. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I, and I, I just, to me, I, I love that portrayal of humanity being ultimately about coming together and ultimately about optimism. Mm, yes. I think it's really yeah, And the, the, the scary side is there is present in this story as well. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of like a lot of stuff that we, we've been talking about. Well, I, I don't remember. I had a second thought there, but it went away. <laughs> uh, well, Jeff, you know, is there anything about Tuki that we have not covered that you would want covered before we finish this conversation? No, I, I'm. I, this was very fun for me to talk to you guys. You are you're the very first people outside of my family, including my cartoon books coworkers, that have read it. Oh my God! So this is the you're the first reaction, and it, that bodes well. I think uh, <laughs> we love it. We love 100% of your readers are bowled over. Yeah, yeah, it's 100%. 100%. <laughs> yeah, Rotten Tomatoes approved 100%. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like just uh, uh, illustration wise, I think this comic, I tweeted this out today. Like, I, I think volume two has some of the best action you have done uh, from a pacing point of view, like the climax of this story is so exciting. Oh, and, thank God. I mean, I worried about that. Oh, uh, well, <laughs> you don't need to, you don't need to. I like, I, 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 I think it's really phenomenal. And it is one of those books that um, I want, I want to like champion, mm -hmm. you know, Lisa and I were talking about it earlier. It's, it's a book that we're going to put into our nibblings hands uh, and our friends hands and point people to, because we find it to be really special. Which is, again, like astonishing to me because Bone for Lisa and I is a heart comic. You know, Bone made us the people we are today. Wow. And so to see you kicking so much ass on Tuki <laughs> is like so inspiring. I, I got to tell you, it feels good when I'm working on it. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling the zen. I'm, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. I, the challenges are hard but I'm liking it. So that's a good sign. I feel good about it. 
Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm already anticipating volume three. Yes. Uh, and I'm sure four. that'll be out before 2027. 20, I'm sure. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, we're planning on still being around. So, uh, and I did not want to let you go. You, uh, you have mentioned that there will be a bone tall tales too, possibly. Yes. Yes. I'm working on that right now. We've got, uh, so this is, uh, I'm sure you can screen cap that. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, we got that's, it. That's, uh, bone tall tales one, uh, which I wrote with my friend, Tom Stagoski, uh, who is one of the funniest guys I know. And, but he was at the time I was, hanging around with him, he was writing Vampirilla and Buffy, which have minor elements of humor, but nothing what I thought he was capable of mm -hmm. to, the, to really show him off. So um, so we did this, we came up with, you know, let's make up some tall tales and just go crazy. So it was it was a fun book to do, and I had to reread it to do a book too. Uh, Scholastic actually wanted another book. Awesome. And I, I had done Coda, Mm -hmm. uh, for the 25th anniversary of Bone, which was like one little extra um, little morsel. Little, yeah, it was like a little morsel. I think it was like 40 pages. Mm -hmm. It was a big story or 36, I can't remember. But, um, and I wanted to, I was like, I wanted to color that and get it in the scholastic canon into these graphics books. So we said, let's do Tall Tales 2 and have that be a story that somebody tells in the story, in the book. And we got, um, we got three artists to four counting, we have Stan Sakai, uh, who did a who did a story with the stupid rat creatures, uh, written by Tom. Uh, we did got Matt Smith, who does a lot of stuff with Mike Mignola. He did a rat creature story, and what else? Who else did we get? I, I have a list. I can't remember. Scotty Scotty Brown. Oh, Scotty. Brown. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and Katie. I'm blanking on her name. I'm sorry, Katie. I'm very sorry. I, got, okay. I have to look it up. I'll, I'll email it to you. Okay, later. yeah, email it to us. Yeah, awesome. Hey, everyone, Brad from the future. Jeff did email us and told us it's Katie Cook, the incredible writer behind IDW's My Little Pony comics, as well as Gronk. And uh, she illustrated a series of Star Wars children's books that I really enjoyed, Creatures Big and Small, Search Your Feelings, and my favorite, ABC3PO. So go check out Katie's work and get ready for some tall tales, too. Now back to past Brad and Lisa with Jeff Smith. Well, Jeff. This has been an absolute pleasure. A, a dream, dream come true. Oh, jinx. Oh, jinx, dream come true. <laughs> um, for our listeners, I'm going to have uh, links in the show notes, but for those people who don't read the links in the show notes, uh, where can they find you online to continue this conversation? Where can they get Tukey? They can get, they can get Tukey anywhere. The Tukey uh, one, the first book, Tukey Fight for Fire, came out in December. Uh, it's going back for the third printing. We just sent it to the printing. That could be you can get that anywhere. You can get it online. You can get it in comic book stores. It's in every. It's all. It's all over. And the same with uh, two, which will ship in July. That will ship in July, and it'll be available everywhere. And oh, and you can get a hold of me. I'm at boneville.com, and also I'm on Twitter at Jeff Smith's Bone. <laughs> um, very funny <laughs> <laughs> well my twitter handle is at mouth dork because of in the mouth of darkness and when i came up with it i had no i did not realize what i was saying oh sure you <laughs> did maybe i did maybe i did a little bit uh there you go jeff again thank you for joining us and uh we hope to get you back on to talk more tukey as more tukey becomes available and and after listening to chris and laura this morning we need to get 
my comic book couple together. I mean, yes. she's been my partner from day one. We, we do everything together. Uh, so yes. next time we do this, we'll get the couple. Yes, please do. Uh, that would, let's take it to the next level. Date night. Date <laughs> night. Date night podcasting. <laughs> that sounds great. All right, Jeff. You have All a great guys, day. Thank you. All right. Take care. How amazing was that conversation? So special. special. I love the moment where he brings up our conversation with Chris and Laura Somney about Jonna and the Impossible Monsters and how Chris had mentioned like what was so important to him was laying out those single issues flat and how Jeff Smith has to get in there like, hey, with these Tukey trades, these very big, very large, floppy Tukey trades, you can crack that spine, and lay them flat on a bed. Format matters. Yes, format matters. And Tukey evolved through several formats until it got to the Homo erectus Most um, dominant species, the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love how this book sits in my lap or lies on my bed when I get on my belly to read it. Uh, It does feel very, very good. It's a comforting read. And, you know, because it is so large, like you really get to like drink in Jeff Smith's illustrations, which like, I mean, Jeff Smith, I like I told him to to his face, to his Zoom face. (laughs) That the action in Tukey, especially in volume two, is some of the best action, if not the best action he's ever done sequentially. I also really appreciate getting to get into some of the like dismissiveness in the educational system of graphic novels. Yeah, that was fun. And him saying, well, a lot of graphic novels, they're created by artists who have a more liberal mindset. And it reminds me of our conversation from our last Saga episode about how putting ideas in someone's head Mm. is a proactive uh, um, course-changing thing to do. A violent action, even. And we've seen across our nation this kind of anti-progressive crackdown of conservatism. So schools saying like, I'm sorry, but your comic books are not books. It's not them be it's not them being pro-literacy, but being more anti-ideas. Because as an educator, I saw that um, the influx of graphic novels into our school got kids excited about reading. Yeah. And by saying, I'm sorry, that thing that you're attracted to, that you want to read, that inspires and encourages you, that's not a book. Yeah. That's messed up. And in the last several months, you've encountered that in your private lessons, mm-hmm. that very you know phrase, that's not a book. It's appeared a lot, right? Yeah. And it's infuriating. But what I appreciated so much from Jeff Smith's point of view is this level of optimism, mm. right? He's been in these fights before. This is actually nothing new. And... We always win. Ideas always win. The delivery system may change, you know, single issues, digital downloads, whatever, format, format, format. But comics are not going anywhere and neither are their creators and neither are their creators ideas. But it would be nice to just hit the fast forward button. Of course. And have freedom and self-expression 
exists today. Yeah, yes. For yes. everyone. Of course. And just because I have hope for the future doesn't mean I could just sit back and chillax. We have to be proactive in our activism. We have to get out there in the world and be the change we want to see. The ones with the best ideas will thrive and survive, just like Tukey did. Yeah, just like Tukey did. And that's going to do it for our Jeff Smith episode. I hope you all enjoyed it half as much as we enjoyed it. Please share it with all of your friends. That would be swell. And go out to your library. See if they've got a book sale going on. If they don't, check out some comic books. Hoopla has so many comic books free for your fingers and your eyes right now. And if you're in the Virginia area, or if you're not in the Virginia area and you have access to the internet, please support one of our favorite comic book shops, Four Color Fantasies. I'll have links in the show notes to their Facebook page and their Twitter account. They are currently doing a sketch cover auction benefiting the Winchester Literacy Volunteers, and they have original art going for killer deals right now for people like James Heron, Scott Morse, David Lapham, Jim Rugg, like incredible talent. And these prices are not crazy. You know, in the past, we have acquired original pieces by Jeff Lemire and Steve Lieber. They've had a Daniel Warren Johnson piece. Now that one went for quite a pretty penny, <laughs> but you'd be surprised what you can get for under a hundred bucks here. It's kind of financially irresponsible for us to promote it because we are quickly being priced out of winning <laughs> these amazing covers. Yeah, we have bids out for two Scott Morse covers right now. And uh, you could probably easily beat them. You could you could easily get them Steal for a good it right deal. Right out from under and us. And I wish you would, because it's such a great charity, and I love what four color fantasies are doing that they do every year. So, so awesome. yeah, support them, get some rad art in the process. So what's coming up next week for Comic Book Couples Canceling? So we spoiled it a little bit already in the intro, but Stan Sakai is coming on Comic Book Couples Counseling. This Thursday, the 28th, is the premiere of Samurai Rabbit, the Usagi Chronicles on Netflix. We've seen the first few episodes. We had a great time mm -hmm. with them. Now, it's not a direct adaptation, and we get into it with Stan Sakai, why that is the case. And it's kind Kind of better that way, I think. I, I mean, I'm a little relieved. Like, I, also, I was relieved just how good the cartoon was. And so I, I like what they're doing with Samurai Rabbit. And we get into it with Stan Sakai. We also have the art director from the show, Kang Lee, talking with us and how he went about uh, updating or changing the designs of the classic Usagi Yojimbo characters and backgrounds. It's a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, very excited to get that out into the world. If you are joining us for the first time, please go back and listen to our saga episodes. We just completed eight podcasts devoted to Marco and Alana's relationship. We poured our heart and soul into those conversations. We love those conversations. And uh, yeah, so go check those out. Our next couple session will involve Angela and Sarah from the Marvel Comics series, Angela, Asgard's Assassin. And that's a series that people have been demanding on this podcast pretty much since the beginning. Okay, Brad, another great episode in the can. Um, I gotta go. I have some very important swirls to draw from the <laughs> inside out. 
Uh, so where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. Yeah, so until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Yeah. doopy doopy Three and a two and a one. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us at Couple Comic Book. I'm doing this over again. <laughs> We're just excited. A little excited. I feel like I deserve a high five for all of the times I said homo erectus and didn't giggle. <laughs> high five.